0: Hey everybody, Mel here again with another episode of The Weekly Watch and I know, I know, I know, there wasn't an episode last week, totally my fault, well, sort of my fault. I'm not actually entirely sure whose fault it is, maybe my computer. I recorded the entire episode and when I was like trying to process it all, like half of it was gone, like not recorded and I have no idea what happened. So mm, as I tweeted, in case you've seen it, it just went foobar and... I wasn't really willing to try and record re-record it again, and I was like, no, forget it. So this week, I will be including the film that I was talking about last week. Well, I was talking about um, My Cousin Rachel, which is a new film starring Rachel Weisz, um, and I think she didn't get the part because her name's Rachel, but you know we'll get into that a bit later, and Sam Claflin. And I also got to see uh, Gifted, the new film with Chris Evans, and Baby Driver, which is probably why you're here, because everyone is going mental over this film, and you probably want to know what I think. So stay tuned for that one. I just want to do a quick shout-out because... Well, not really a shout-out. I got to see uh, Terminator 2 um, almost two weeks ago now. Um, I also talked about this last week, and now it's gone. Um, Anyway, there's going to be a new 3D version of Terminator 2 coming to cinemas. Um, I'd heard about this sometime last year. Um, I wasn't entirely sure whether we're going to get it here in the UK, whether we're going to get it in Europe at all. Um, I knew it was um, going to be a big release in in the States and stuff like that. And I've probably mentioned this like 50 million times before, but I love Terminator 2. This is one of my all time favorite films ever, ever usually you know how people always go like oh so what you like films you're into films so what's your favorite film i hate that question i'm like well my favorite film usually changes a lot because my favorite film depends on my mood and what i've seen lately what i haven't seen lately those kinds of things you know um i can never name a favorite film until like i think it was sometime last year where it just occurred to me that every time people ask you for what's your favorite film there are two films that always come up at pretty much at the top of my list top of my tongue and that's aliens so just in case there's a bad recording aliens as in the second alien film um, directed by James Cameron and Terminator 2 also directed by James Cameron now don't call me a James Cameron fanboy girl whatever even though I kind of am Um, I think I've seen pretty much all of his films and that including the documentaries which i think are fantastic i mean this guy just really goes to all kinds of depths you know, like the depths of the deep blue sea to go and have a look at the titanic and he did a documentary documentary about the bismarck i think uh, which is a ship and uh, obviously was a person which is the ship's named after um and he's done like a lot of stuff like that that is very I'm not sure if it's the right word, outlandish. It's like really extreme and people wouldn't usually go to such lengths to do these things. But he he just likes to rewrite the rule book all the time and to I I think just like to challenge himself and just to to keep it fresh and stuff. Even though, of course, at the moment he is involved in Avatar 2, 3, 4 and 5 or something like that. I I, I lost track of how many Avatar films he's doing, Um, but you can rest assured when they come out yes i'll be seeing them i will because i've seen all of his films and i like them and a lot of them are some of my favorite films of all time and of course the first terminator is among that as well um and the only thing i can think of right now is true lies and and titanic and obviously there was a lot of other things that he's done um but yeah terminator 2 and aliens always come up when i talk about my favorite films um because they've just they've influenced me um to a really really deep degree uh, high degree i think is the right word um and they both are female led basically you could say uh well i mean terminator 2 linda hamilton she's not the lead but you know what i mean she's like a str- strong female character it's like don't say strong female character every female character could be a strong female character anyway I like Ripley, I like Sarah Connor, especially Terminator 2 Sarah Connor because she she doesn't just react to the shit that's happening to her like in Terminator 1, but she's actually actively going out there and doing stuff. And she has her own agenda and she's going for it, she has her own agency and she's going for it. You know this whole no fate thing. So anyway, we got to see Terminator 2 in its shiny new pristinely beautiful 3D version. And it was amazing. Now, um, I wrote a review for uh, Acting Hour. I'm not sure it might go up on fan but I have no idea. I will link to it from my website. By the way, if you don't know the website, it's weeklywatchcast, all one word, dot wordpress.com. And you can find all the episodes of the Weekly Watch on there. Um, You can find um, my written reviews on there, there are linkages on there, so just check that out. Um, You can also find a link to my Twitter account, so we can talk about films and you can email me and all that stuff. Um, So, what I really loved about Terminator 2, watching it in the cinema again, um, it wasn't so much that it's a 3D version, Uh, I mean, the 3D was was good, Uh, it's the 3D that I like, you know, it's not the yo-yo effect like shit coming at you from the screen. It's more the creating depth, like a depth of field kind of a thing, like you're actually looking at stuff, the way you look at it in in the real world, and I really like that. So I'm not sure if I think that the 3D added anything to it, but I didn't need anything to be added to the film because, like I said, this is already one of my favorite films of all time and fuck the 3d seriously it's good 3d trust me like there, there, there were no you know sometimes when you when you watch 3d and you're not sitting near the center of the screen near the center of the movie theater um, you sometimes get these weird shadowy outlines like almost like ghosting or something around persons uh, sorry around people and objects and stuff like that I wasn't sitting in the middle, I was sitting quite a bit sidelined, but I didn't have any of these effects. So I'm not sure how they did that. Maybe it's a different type of 3D. I've got no clue, but it was really well done. I didn't have any of these weird ghosting effects that sometimes happen, especially when there's um, when, when you're not it, it's like when your glasses aren't aligned right to the screen. Um, it's really weird. I've had that happen in I think it was Pirates of the Caribbean, the new Pirates of the Caribbean film where that happened to me a lot. And I was actually sitting almost pretty much dead center. And it was really weird. And obviously it's quite annoying. Um, This didn't happen here. But like I said, you can pretty much fuck the 3D. Forget about that. If you like Terminator 2, you need to go and see this in cinemas when it comes out. I think it's released August 26th this year. Um, Go to your cinema and check this out because there's a pretty good chance that If you like Terminator 2, you've probably never seen it on the big screen. I only saw it on the big screen through uh, a coincidence because the cinema put it on. But what they did is they literally just hooked up. I think back then it was a DVD. They hooked up a DVD to their projector and then just projected it onto the, the cinema screen. So we were literally just watching DVD in like a ginormous home cinema, so to speak. Uh, it was still really fucking cool because I've never seen Terminator 2 on the on the big screen, but this time I didn't feel as if it was better or different, but it was just amazing. And obviously, like I said, I love the film, so there was a lot of nostalgia coming through and stuff like that. It's just amazing to see, and I think they must have cleared up the the picture as well, because it's so pristine. When you think about it, the, the film was released in 1991. That means it's 26 years old. Just think about that. It's 26 years old. And the effects, the picture quality, the audio anyway, the um, and now also the added on 3D, it looks like the film was just shot today. It, it can rival blockbusters that are out this summer that were shot in the last two years. Seriously, I shit you not. It looks fantastic. I think this is the version that you need to go and see and obviously it's going to be out in cinemas October, sorry, uh, August 26, October I want Halloween. Um, But just go and see it. If you've seen it before on the big screen, fine. It's a treat. Just go and see it again. If you've never seen it before and trust me, I found out these people actually do exist. One of my friends who came to the cinema with me She never seen Terminator 2. I'm not sure. I think she'd seen Terminator 1, but never the second one. And I was just like staring at her, my jaw literally on the floor. And she loved it. She thought it was fantastic. It looked great. And the the special effects, obviously everything is just literally like a blockbuster that was released nowadays. It holds up so, so well. It was cleaned up really well. And one of the treats that we got was we had the T-1000 Robert Patrick he came to London and he gave a bit of a like an introduction to the film and he um, he was interviewed like for maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes before the film started see this is how you do it Disney you you don't just have people sit to wait for Pirates of the Caribbean to start and then make them watch a 40 minute long stream from Disneyland Paris you get someone in to answer like a QA and a or or to share some anecdotes or whatever it is. And that's what Robert Patrick did. He shared some amazing anecdotes about what it was like to shoot the film, what they got up to behind the scenes, how certain scenes were shot or um, what what their approach was for it or what happened during production or during shooting and, and all of that stuff. It was really interesting and I absolutely loved it. And he is just fantastic. And it was it was a lot of fun to to see him, and it was also a lot of fun to see this film. and I, I think I just never really consciously thought about the the idea that this film is 26 years old. like time seriously flies. I still remember being in high school when this film came out, and asking every single one of my friends if they wanted to go and see it in cinemas, and every single one of them said no. And back then I was like oh, okay I'm not going by myself hmm. yeah it, it was that so in 91 I actually didn't go and see it I'm not sure if I would have been able to but I would have been old enough I've not well technicalities but great film like I said if you've never seen it before you have to check it out trust me you will not regret it this is one of the best sci-fi action films ever made and The the fight for human survival has never looked better. It is fucking fantastic. I absolutely love it. If you're a fan of the Terminator franchise, you have to go and see it anyway, right? There's no doubt in your mind. Go and see it. I highly recommend it. It's no waste of time or money. Absolutely worth it. It's not the same as watching whatever version you have at home. I think I've got like the Skynet version here at home. it's not the same as watching it at home no matter how big your screen is or if you have a projector or if you have a ginormous surround system whatever it is it's not the same trust me go to the cinema and enjoy it now on to the other film from last week i didn't really get a chance to talk to you about um my cousin rachel now that film is based on a book by daphne du Maurier, and i i'm pretty sure i probably am mispronouncing her name Um, I didn't know it was based on a book until the film started and it says this whole thing is like based on the book by so-and-so and I was like oh okay cool so I knew the author's name I know that she's a um, she's a great writer um, actually I'm not sure if she's still alive so she might have she maybe was a great writer um, I remember my dad he had one of her books and it was called the Jamaica Inn or Jamaica Inn mm-hmm. I am German after all um, I don't remember Anything about that book other than I thoroughly enjoyed reading it But it's it's like I remember the title. I know what the book looked like. I would be able to find it on his shelf But I have no idea what it was about. I read it when I was like, I don't know 10 12 So i have no recollection of that whatsoever. So I'm really intrigued after seeing the film. I Really want to go and see uh, and read the book It's really got me intrigued I as a general rule, I try never to read the book before I go and see the film unless that's you know Happened years and years ago. Then obviously, uh, you know, tough shit can't really change it Um, But what what's the film about so in case you don't know what the book's about um, It's pretty much the same thing. So you have uh, Rachel Weiss. She plays the title role Rachel and you have Sam Claflin who plays uh, what's his name? Philip. Philip was his name um, not that it really mattered because the entire time I, I just called her Rachel because obviously that's her name, and I called him Sam because his name's Sam Cleveland. I didn't really give a shit about what he was called in the film. Um, I'm not sure what time it is. Like, it's a period piece. I think it's the 19th century, and we're somewhere in like England or, you know, so, somewhere rural England and um, little Philip when he was a little boy something happened to his parents they both died and his um, rather wealthy cousin Ambrose Ashley adopts him just to you know to take care of him and i don't know whether they had foster parents back then probably not so you know he was extended family he took care of them and he grew up with his older cousin Ambrose And one of the peculiarities about the entire setting at first is that they live in this ginormous estate somewhere out in the country. It looks really gorgeous, there's like a lot of nature and stuff and they get along with all their staff really well and everything is just, you know, hunky-dory. Until you realize that everyone in this estate is male. And I thought that was really weird because usually at at times like these, like in, in period pieces especially, you would have like a female housekeeper or a maid or something like that, right? So that that is something that I, I was kind of expecting. But one of the peculiarities about the film, about the setting is that the Ambrose Ashley estate has no females. So we have young Philip growing up there, devoid of any female contact. Now he was very young when his parents died, so obviously he didn't really have... Have much of a a mother figure. He only had his cousin, so he's been brought up in a very male-oriented, almost secluded uh, conclave or something. Um, And then something happens like that. There, he he's pretty much grown up. um, I would say maybe like early twenties or something. Back then, he would only be a proper adult um, and allowed to make his own decisions and inherit stuff and stuff like that when he's 25 years old that was quite high back then um so he's younger than that so he must have been like 24 and his cousin ambrose falls ill and he has to go i think it was venice somewhere in italy because he needed warmer weather or or something like that he didn't really react well to the english countryside so little philip was tasked with taking over the estate and Ambrose was in Italy, and then you find out um, they, they exchange letters as you did, uh, as you used to do back then. And you find out that Ambrose has fallen for a young woman named Rachel, and that they were getting, uh, they got married, and all of that. And Philip is really confused by that. It's like, well, what's this thing with a, with a woman? Why? Why? It's like, why are you falling for a woman? And when all of this stuff comes up um, in the film, the way it is treated in the film for a second, or longer than a second, actually, I was like were they more than just cousins you know there there was a bit of a gay vibe there maybe i was like well he only he grew up in an estate only of men you know it's like the the reverse wonder woman paradise island scenario in rural england somewhere and i was like well maybe they had a thing going because he was really like jealous and and not understanding, not comprehending the situation at all and I was like that's really weird and then something happens and other, la- uh, other other letters arrive and it sounds like either Ambrose is losing his shit or Rachel is trying to kill him and the end of it all is that uh, Philip rushes over to Italy because Ambrose asked him to and he arrives only to find out that his cousin had died um, I think they call it a heart attack, but he he thinks Rachel killed him somehow, poisoned him or whatever. Um, he returns to England and, you know, takes care of the estate and stuff and is really pissy with Rachel, who he's never met. And then it turns out that, of course, Rachel is arriving there as well. We don't exactly know why. I mean, my idea was that, well, where else would she go? She was married to your cousin, who is the well the the owner, the ruler of your estate. I think she is legally entitled to at least half if not everything that we see here. Um, but when she rocks up she just goes I just wanted to see where he grew up. He told me so much about this willow and this tree and this river and this forest and this you know all of that like really personal stuff. And it's like oh maybe you know maybe she's not a witch but he obviously goes like oh I want to see her and Uh, i'm gonna treat her really badly and i'm gonna make sure you know she's gonna pay for killing ambrose and then he actually physically meets her and i assume like any young man who for the first time meets a really gorgeous beautiful woman even though she is 10 years older than him maybe that's even more making him go oh my god what am i looking at here hello that's pretty much the reaction that, that we're getting and it's understandable because Rachel Wise is absolutely gorgeous and that there, there's just something about her that is intoxicating and you, you can't not think about her pretty much you know she's just fascinating beyond belief and it's not just this whole thing about you've never seen a woman before and you're fascinated by the unknown and what you don't know and 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 what you've never experienced and all of that. and obviously he's a young man so you know maybe he just you know his passion is rising and whatever you know so there's all of this stuff happening there and she never tries to take the estate away from him ever and this is where the film really goes into so many different levels and is really clever um, so of course the entire film is about this premise of did she or did she not kill Ambrose, poison him, and there's something along the lines of is Rachel poisoning Philip now to take uh, the estate away from him as well, um, and that there's like all kinds of all kinds of stuff that that happens there, and it's it's just, I mean, Claflin plays. Like a little, you know, puppy-eyed, puppy-eyed puppy, puppy is what I wanted to say. That makes no sense. You know, he's he's just so cute, and he's just like so mega infatuated with her, and he just can't resist her. And you feel that she's like a woman of the world, and she knows how to work her womanly vials and and. He just doesn't stand a chance, and that's pretty much what it is. But what I loved about the film is that it always leaves it very ambiguous as to what is actually going on. Now, I'm going to be talking about more of that in in spoilers because I don't want to give too much away. So the premise is that all of this shit has happened. Rachel is now in England living with Philip um, platonically. They just shared the house and the estate. Um, He's not 25 yet and his lawyer is basically saying, as soon as you turn 25, you are actually taking ownership of the estate and it's yours. Um, I'm I'm not sure. I, I don't remember whether they actually ever tell you whether she is actually the legal owner of the estate because Ambrose died and she's his wife, I think. The legalities were probably different back then. Maybe as the wife, she doesn't really have a right to it. I have no idea. It's never really brought up, but she never asks him for anything. And he's obviously very smitten with her, very infatuated. So he talks to his lawyer and he's like, well, you know, we should make her comfortable and give her like a stipend or something like that. You know, give her access to some money so that she can live and Later on in the film, the lawyer goes like, well, she's going through that stipend quite a lot. And he was like, well, then we just have to make it bigger, you know, that, it's really interesting to see where that is going. It's, it's like a cat and mouse play and you're not entirely sure who's the cat and who's the mouse. And I thought that was fantastic. And obviously, I mean, Sam Clavelin is great and Rachel Weisz is just phenomenal, I mean, I mean, I love Rachel Weisz, you know, when when I see, the, I think early in the year, I saw her in Denial and she, she's just amazing. She's the reason why I actually went and saw this film um, because I'm usually not really a big fan of period pieces and stuff like that. But this film was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. It's so nuanced, all the performances are really, really great. I, I loved it a lot and um, there are a lot of, uh, I mean, you have also Ian Glennis in this film there's a lot of really, really gorgeous uh, things that the, the cinematography is absolutely beautiful. The costumes are like, everything's so lush and vibrant and, and beautiful and full of life. And it's, it's just a joy to watch. And all the while, you know that somewhere or, or, or you think that in all this beauty and, and, and lush life affirming stuff, there's this little poison river trickling through it all. And you don't exactly know where it is or where it's going. And that's what kind of keeps it, keeps it real and keeps it interesting. And then of course you have you have Rachel Weisz and her performance is always fantastic. Um, Claflin works really well because he has like this, this baby face, this innocence about him. And and of course, like I said, he, he lost his mum when he was really young. And then you have a woman, a gorgeous woman that, Sort of showers him with affection for the very first time in his life, um, and she's ten years older, and it, it's like Oedipus, you know. He is infatuated with her because she's beautiful and gorgeous, and he wants her, but also because she's like a mother figure. Um, there, there's somewhere in the in the in the film, I, I think early on uh, after they met, I think she. She, she kind of, she tells him, I think she tells him now it's uh, now. It's time to go to bed like a good boy or like the good boy you are or something like that. It's like, that's a really weird way to, to talk to the person in whose house you're living. But she says that. And by doing that, she asserts her control over him, her motherly control, her superiority over him. And and it's really great like I think she gives him like a goodnight kiss or something like a a platonic one goodnight kiss now go to bed like a little good like a good little boy and it's just he later on gives her his mother's necklace because he wants her to wear it all the time and it's like I'm not sure whether he's like infatuated with her because he lusts after her or whether he's desperately looking for a mother figure and it's all this ambiguity that makes the film really interesting and fascinating and if i want to talk more about this i have to I have to talk about this in spoilers but that's pretty much the that's pretty much the gist there um ian glenn who plays his lawyer his he has a younger daughter in in the film and she is um, Holiday Granger. I I don't remember where I've seen her last. I think she played a thingy in the Borgias. Um, I think she might have been Lucretia in the Borgias and she was fucking fantastic in that as well. So she she does a really great performance in this. She's kind of infatuated with Philip. She wants Philip. She basically is expecting to marry Philip and he's just not having any of it. He just doesn't doesn't care. She's the only woman you could say that he's ever met but because she's the same age roughly as him i assume that they sort of grew up together and you know how this whole thing how when you grow up with someone you look at them slightly different and someone needs to hit you over the head for you to go oh my god yeah this person is a sexual person is a sexual being um and i might be attracted to them but when rachel shows up because also she's 10 years younger she's like this this sexually amazing and experienced and, and full-grown, assured woman, and that obviously is really, really fascinating um, for Philip. The assertiveness that she has and, and the confidence and all of that, it's perfect. Absolutely perfect. I really, really love this film. Um, especially considering where it goes in the end, I'm going to talk more about that in spoilers. It leaves... It has an ambiguous ending. And I know that a lot of people don't like that. Uh, I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm a fan of it, but I, I'm also not disliking it. I love that um, when I talked to one of my colleagues just a few days later, we had like at least a half an hour discussion just about, did she, didn't she? And it's that its that uh, open-ended discussion that I think is, is great for films like that. It's like, oh, how did you see the And what what do you think? Do you think she did it? Do you think she didn't do it? Blah, 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 whatever it was. Um, and everyone brings up certain bits and bobs and it's like, hmm, interesting. I never saw it like that. One of the things I'm going to say before I go into spoilers is that after I'd seen the film, I was thoroughly entertained by it. I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's definitely worth seeing, not just for the performances, but the entire film is just really captivating and interesting and fascinating. Even though some of the bits with Sam Claflin's character um, I found a bit uh, not grating or unbelievable, but, but a bit of a stretch. You know, you have someone, you have a young man who looks like Sam Claflin, who's 24 years old in the film. and I'm, And it's in, in the 19th century, right? And I'm supposed to believe that he's never been with a woman. Like, seriously, I'm supposed to believe that. I found it really hard to believe. Um, also, he, you know, he's he's a rich person. He's quite wealthy. He's good looking. He's charming. Are you trying to tell me that he's like, there's not a single woman? Obviously, you know, I, I assume he wouldn't just fuck his cousin's lawyer's daughter just for the hell of it. But there must be other women some at the market somewhere or wherever in town right there's a church where there are other women you know it's like I don't know that there are ways to do these things so I thought that was a tiny bit of a stretch that he is like this this inexperienced naive innocent virgin and I was like that, that's a bit weird but okay fair enough this is what the premises of, of the book so okay that's where we go it's really well done um, the, there's no fat there really like the scripts really tight the dialogue's really interesting and it's it's sort of like a lesson in psychology as well when you see how Rachel um, approaches certain scenarios or basically how Rachel approaches the entire fucking thing from start to to end it's like a lesson in psychology and it's really fascinating just for that and then on top of that you have all these other things that happen and it's it's just amazing. You just have to go and see it. like seriously, I, I can't rave about it enough. the performances are great. It looks absolutely gorgeous. It's really beautifully done. L- like I said, some of the stuff that Sam Claflin's character Philip was doing, I thought was a bit of a stretch. but then you know this is apparently what it's like in the book. So it seems to be a really good adaptation of the original novel. So if you've read that, I think you would like it that's at least what I read about it. Like I said, I've never read the book myself, but it's on top of my list right now. So now I want to go into, um, into spoilers. Let me just quickly write this down. Okay. Spoilers. This is your official spoiler warning for my cousin, Rachel. Dang dang All right. One of the things that I thought was really weird. Oh, well, not necessarily weird, but at at the end uh, or near the end uh, you know throughout the entire film it was this whole thing that Rachel because she's from Italy well she's British but she lived in Italy right so she always brews this fucking Italian tea that apparently tastes like unwashed socks or something Um, and no one likes them but and yet Philip keeps drinking it and drinking it and drinking it because he's infatuated with her it's like oh my god it's a gorgeous woman she makes the worst meatloaf ever but i love eating it because she makes it that kind of a thing. Um, So he, he drinks this throughout the entire film, this tea. And after a while, of course, he starts being paranoid again, because what he does is he goes to his lawyer and basically sets up a document that as soon as he turns 25 and is the official owner of the estate and everything that comes with it, he will pass it over, officially write it into her name so that she is the official owner because he's totally infatuated with her and blah 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 and then I'm not sure if she reads the letter first and then has sex with him or has sex with him and then reads the letter either way after that night and he's like oh my god women are the greatest because I just had sex with a woman Um, she goes really cold because she now has the estate and everything that comes with it which I assumed that that point in the film was her entire plan. And I still think that was her entire plan because why the hell would she have traveled all the way from Italy just to say hi to the cousin? I have no idea. So I think she was after the thing the the entire time. But one of the things that happens, like I said, throughout the entire film, she feeds him or she makes him drink this vile tea. And there is a scene near the end where uh, I think her name was Lucy. Granger's name Louise Holiday Grangers yeah she was Louise She's there and everyone's having tea and Rachel Weiss is presenting two cups of tea and she tells Louise oh no not that one this one's that one's for, for uh, Philip this one's yours and it's like oh it's because you because you're poisoning him right and his health deteriorates really rapidly and all of that stuff so it seems to be heavily insinuated that she's poisoning him. And I was like, okay, so why is she doing that? She already owns everything. That makes no sense. And then something happens at the very end of the film that made me rethink everything. And I thought that was really clever and also quite annoying, but also really clever. Um, something happens where you you go to town or something, and you ride past, you ride on your horse um, over a cliff, and there's a scene at near the end of the film where Sam Claflin rides that route with his horse and the ground below him gives way and he almost falls to his death on the cliff. And he just barely manages to escape that. And so he knows that it's a really treacherous route, right? So at the end, when he thinks, fuck, Rachel is killing me, even though I don't, I mean, it makes no sense that she would kill him, but whatever. Um, he tells her to go for a ride and to use that route because it's a more scenic route and she goes oh yeah i will do that that's fine and you find out later that oh i can't remember what it was in the film now god damn it it was a week ago um he has a change of heart because oh yeah yeah right because everything is in her name now But he finds out that she put all the jewelry that that he gave her, he put that back. She put that back with the lawyer and basically told the lawyer that this will be his, uh, I mean, Philip's forever, that this is not hers because this is his jewelry. This is his mother's jewelry. This is personal stuff. She doesn't want any of that. So she writes ownership over to Philip again and the lawyer knows and I think the lawyer I'm not sure if the lawyer tells him or if if Louise tells him but he finds out just after Rachel has departed on a horse and then he's like shit and he quickly jumps on a horse without a saddle even and just tries and, and and catches her but he arrives just a few minutes too late and the next thing you see is him at the top of the cliff staring down at the beach and you see a horse and a female body um, and it's, it's clearly uh, insinuated that um, Rachel has died because he told her to write there and it looks like that she actually never had any ill intent towards him or well, that's what I liked about the ending. is like did she have any ill intent towards him because as soon as she had everything that she presumably wanted she was never not nice to him right so it, it was like I'm I'm not sure whether whether um, whether she poisoned him whether she poisoned Ambrose why would she poison Ambrose when she was in Italy um, if he's no longer there she doesn't have any access to his money does she so it, it was like I'm not sure I'm, I'm 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 still not sure like even a week later and talking to a few people about it I'm not sure. I think that maybe she was actually just being a nice person. This is just who she is. Or she was a conniving bitch. Or maybe she's an amalgamation of both. But one of the things I really loved about the film, no matter how you see the ending, and it's very ambiguous and and tragic, obviously, because he's trying to save her, because he realizes that she is not all bad. And then it's too late. Um, But what I loved um, throughout the film you never really know that when, when his health is deteriorating and all of that stuff. Is she actually poisoning him? Is he just, is he just making this up? Is, is he maybe sick because of something else? At the end of the film, I was like, um, he ends up marrying Louise and having two children and his health never really comes back. So I was like, what, what if it's a genetic thing, potentially? Apparently Ambrose might have had a tumor or something. What if he has the same thing? What if it's down to something entirely different had nothing to do with, you know, unwashed socks tasting tea from Italy? Um, maybe it was Louise the entire time because Louise wanted him and The best thing to make someone want you is when you can take care of them and obviously when he's sick she could take care of him So I don't know. There's all of that stuff. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the if the novel ever tells you what the hell was going on. Um, So I like the ambiguity of an open end like that. It's really made for for discussion with all your friends. And how did you see that? How did you see that? Um, I I didn't see it in one particular light. I think she could have potentially been, you know, scheming the entire time just so she gets ownership. But then obviously that's really stupid because would she th- would she forget about him potentially realizing that she's poisoning him and him trying to do something against it about her, you know? I know that he was infatuated with her and she obviously knew that he was heavily infatuated with her, but would that be bigger than him wanting to kill her uh, kill her because she's potentially trying to poison him? It's like, how big does she think the infatuation is? I mean, she's gorgeous and stuff, but I mean, sooner or later, you're reaching like a limit, right? Um, But the thing that I loved most about the film was, uh, as I mentioned previously, um, the psychological entanglements, the way that she plays him, not just plays with him, but totally plays him. Like she really knows how to work people. I assume she knows, because she knows how to work women just as well. There's um, there's uh, there's a girl in the film. That, there's some twins in the film. Uh, I can't remember what their names were. But she also ingratiates herself with them and with the lawyer. And so even though the lawyer, I mean, Ian and the other lawyer or notary or whatever that is in, in town. Um, they kind of catch on to her. And they're like, mate you sure you want to do this like that's a bit extreme and stuff um, but the way that she plays everyone she it, it's like you figure out who the vulnerable person is who the naive innocent person is and then you prey on them and it was I know this sounds weird but it was beautiful to behold and the way that Rachel wise plays Rachel is just so so subtle and nuanced literally like just with a look or with a tilt of a head she's saying so much and the way Cleflin reacts to it like that they really are great sounding boards for each other just seeing them in scenes together is absolutely mesmerizing and that in itself for me makes a really great film and I love this film and I think everyone should go and see it Um, so if you get a chance Go and watch My Cousin Rachel. It's definitely worth it, you won't regret it, trust me or not. Alright now on to the other film, um, Gifted, the new Chris Evans film that I was really really excited to see. Um, We had an unlimited screening at Cineworld, uh, I think was it a week ago, a few days ago, I can't remember, and all our members, my twitter feed exploded, everyone just like saying how amazing it is and blah blah blah. So I really couldn't wait to see this. I was not ready for what I was about to see. It was, it was absolutely fantastic. And um, so what's going on in Gifted is like, we're, we're somewhere in Florida. It's, I think it's in the here and now. And you have, um, oh, what was his name? Frank. So Chris Evans plays a guy called Frank Adler. And he has a seven-year-old daughter. Also, we think, we later find out he's just the uncle, but he lives with a seven-year-old daughter, a girl called Mary Adler. And she's been homeschooled all her life. Well, I mean, to be fair, she's only seven, right? I think you sent people to, you sent kids to school with six, I, I assume. So... She doesn't really want to go to school. She's a very bright and smart little girl. Um, Some of the stuff that they talk about will just blow your mind. And it's like, wow, what's going on? They don't live in a very nice part of Tampa. They don't, they're not trailer trash, but they live in one of those. I don't know what you call these, these buildings, but they're basically just like four walls and a roof. I mean, most buildings are obviously, but you know what I mean. Um, And. His landlady played by Octavia Spencer and I love Octavia Spencer. <laughs> She's awesome. Um, they're really close and Octavia Spencer's um, Character looks after Mary quite a lot. So they, they are very very close and um, I really love that in, in the film as well. Um, her na- oh, Roberta. Her name was Roberta, right? So we're, we're somewhere in Florida and now it's been decided that Mary has to go to school because she's seven years old and even though Frank has been homeschooling her to an extent he's like you need to find some friends your own age because you only hang out with myself with your one-eyed crazy cat Fred the the cat's amazing by the way one-eyed Fred awesome and I think it's a girl cat actually but it's called Fred I love it Um, and uh, Roberta you know the landlady so she basically just hangs out with grown-ups And I could sort of relate to that because I'm an only child and I was basically mostly hanging out with grown-ups when I wasn't in school So that's where Frank is like you need to go to school. You need to be around kids your age You need to learn how to fucking socialize, right? So she goes to school and it doesn't take very long for a teacher to figure out that Mary is gifted She's very clever she knows how to do all kinds of crazy math that someone in first grade shouldn't be able to do. Someone in fourth grade shouldn't be able to do. Um, so she, uh, the teacher, Barney, who kind of takes a shine to Frank, of course, because he's played by Chris Evans and he's pretty, um, she talks to her principal and the principal goes, oh, I know someone at this amazing school for special gifted children and we can get her a scholarship and all of that stuff. So Frank, because he doesn't have a lot of money, because he lives, you know, in the sticks and stuff like that. um, He's like, no, we're not doing this. I want Mary to have a normal childhood. There's nothing more important to me than her having a normal childhood. And he's talking about how in his family they have a bit of an experience with like school for gifted children and stuff. And he's not having any of this shit. So he takes Mary and he was like, we're not going to a special school. We're doing as we've been doing, right? And obviously Mary, because she is gifted and she is a bit, um, in, in certain areas, a bit more advanced than other students her age, doesn't have the easiest time fitting into that school. And she's... <laughs> there's a scene um, later on in the film that I really loved. Um, and also different characters' reaction to it. Uh, so Mary... Is very outspoken, especially for her age, especially for being a girl her age. So she's very outspoken at school. She talks back to the teachers and stuff like that, and she's told not to do it. And it's like, yeah, it's all fine. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn how to, how to behave and stuff. And then she's on the school bus, and one of the boys in her class um, brings in like a, a project, a really beautifully done zoo or something, and one of the older boys makes him trip. So he smashes into his model that he created, and it's it's fucked, it's broken. And and Mary sees that and tells the boy off, and the boy's like, "Well, what you gonna do about it?" And she's like, "Hmm, what am I gonna do about it?" And she sees a really big book in someone else's backpack, takes it and smashes it over his face, uh, breaking his nose. And I know you know you shouldn't condone violence when it comes to children and all of that, but. I did sit in the cinema and I went, whoa, yay. I mean, no, actually, yay, way to go, little girl. Because I thought that was fantastic. And then of course, you know, we're back in the principal's office and and the principal's not very, very pleased with this. And Chris Evans is sitting there and basically going like, You know he's not like the beaming dad as we sometimes see who goes like I'm proud of my kid you know that's exactly what I would have done that's exactly what I want my kid to have done I think that was fantastic I mean it's wrong to hit someone but that was actually the right scenario if ever to hit someone Um, and he says that but without gloating sort of he's just like you know what I'm actually really proud of her and you should be too because we need people that actually step up for other people. He was a little kid and he was bullied by someone three years older. And you have this little girl who has no way of fighting this bully because he's way stronger than her. And she comes up with this ingenious idea of taking a ginormous book and smashing it into his face. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, while he also, of course, says that violence bet- uh, among children, of course, is nothing to be condoned and nothing good, and we will talk about that. This is not okay. But. I think she reacted perfectly well in this and I love this scene and there are several scenes throughout this film that are so poignant because not just that um, one or two or several characters have a certain stance in regards to something and and i making adamant points um, towards them but they also see the other side of the coin and there's like while I while I do condone while I don't condone this action but you have to see that the general gist of it was a good thing um, and that's what this film does really really well and th- th- that's what I really love about the film because um, it's got a few really good messages and it's got a lot of heart and I, I think you can easily I'm um, I'm not sure what the rating was of the film bugger I didn't actually look this up because I just wanted to say it might be really good for parents to actually go and watch this with their children because it's really interesting to see that um obviously it's not really geared towards children but um that was a very touching touching scene there are several brilliant scenes throughout the film i'm seriously from start to finish i was i was really engaged not just emotionally just with with everything i cared about all the characters i cared about frank yeah all the characters were really engaging like all of them had revelations ab- to the audience about themselves you know you think Frank is a certain type of character and then later on so throughout the film you learn that holy shit Frank's not actually who I thought he was he doesn't have the background of who I thought he would be you know he's very different than what you get to see at the start of the film. And it's stuff like that, where it's not necessarily character development, but there are revelations about every single character that is important in this film. That um, it it kind of broadens their role, it broadens the character, it makes the character so much more interesting, or even further, it makes it so much more astounding and uh, important the choices the character has made previously before you had the information that you now have and i know this all sounds really like what she talking about i don't really want to give too much away um, i'm going to be talking about this in spoilers but the way that the script is structured is just so beautiful it's like we're not working with flashbacks even though i think there might have been one or two flashbacks if i'm not mistaken But the narrative structure is fantastic and the way that you you're introduced to the characters and you think you know who they are and you know where they fit into in the hierarchical structure of society and all of that stuff, because that's really important later on, Um, because of course, with the girl being gifted and everyone going like, oh, my God, we need to send her to a gifted school. If Frank keeps her out of gifted school, he is basically minimizing her potential. And so they find Frank's mum, so Mary's maternal grandmother And she comes in and then all hell broke loose and this is when the film really gets interesting because Mary's grandmother Is really interested in having Mary attend a school for the gifted having her brought up to her full potential so that she can be like a poster chart for mathematics and that she can um, solve one of those Millennium Prize problems, which is something i would never heard of before, but then I'm not a mathematician. So apparently there are a few, like, what was it, five or six so-called Millennium Prize problems, which are mathematical problems that the mathematical community is trying to solve. And these problems, apparently, they, they would help further along science and, and not not just mathematics, but but physics and all kinds of things. They would basically help us understand a lot more and probably improve science and potentially everyone's lives. Um, So that's a huge thing. And one of the things we find out throughout the film is that... um, What was her name? Was it Daisy? I'm not sure. Mary's mom. What was... Diane, actually. Mary's mom, Diane, who is Frank's sister, because at first I thought that Mary was his child and that maybe something happened to his wife or something but later on you find out that he is actually just her uncle because his sister, Diane, committed suicide when Mary was about six months old and she left the child with him. Um, And he then pretty much ran from where he was, He, he crossed state lines, which is why he now lives in Florida Whereas I think his mom is from Massachusetts or something. I think they're from Boston. Um, and it's this whole thing is like, you, you know, Boston with, with all the universities and with, with all the access to shit that you have up there in such a big affluent metropolis versus, I think they're they're in a small town near Tampa or something. You're, it, it feels like, it, it's like mosquito mosquito infested swamp is where the girl currently lives. And pristine, awesome high-rise apartments in Boston is where she could be living, you know. That kind of of a uh, of, of a societal divide between the grandmother and the uncle, um, which was I thought was really really interesting. Um, and th- there are other things there as well uh, later on that there's like tiny dicks um, against race and stuff. Because of course, what happens is the grandmother wants the girl do all this mathematical shit whereas Frank doesn't want her to Um, and of course we go to court because they are fighting for custody and that's when it gets really ugly and that's when a lot of stuff from the past is trudged back up and some of the things that we were taking for granted uh, pretty much near the start of the film we found out we find out a lot more information later on that gives everything an entirely different spin and all of a sudden you see some of the characters in an entirely different light and I was really surprised by that because I'm usually quite good at like spotting shit like that but this one really had me surprised it was absolutely fantastic and um, the performances are great, I mean Chris Evans, he, you know, Mr. Captain America, right? Um, but he's he's more than just a pretty face and, and muscle. He's, he's a real, I don't want to say character actor, but, but yeah, he's a real character actor. You know, I really fucking believed all of the stuff that was going on there and why Frank was doing the things that he was doing and he was not perfect, but he was also not a fuck-up, you know, and all of that stuff. The little girl, uh, McKenna Grace, I don't think I've ever seen her in anything. She's fucking amazing. I love this little girl. She's just... I, I never had a problem thinking of her as someone who might be gifted. You know, she's she's such a bright, energetic young person. And she's also quite assertive and and confident and inquisitive. And she's a fascinating character. And this little girl, she did really, really well. I loved her character. Her and Chris Evans together in scenes, pure gold, absolute gold. And I don't just mean their, their dynamics. Like later on, of course, as is usual with films like that, there will be some very tragic and dramatic stuff happening. As I mentioned, there's a custody battle, so things don't really go necessarily very well. Um, and I, I cried in this film several times. Happy tears, sad tears, happy tears again, you know. Um, good tears, bad tears. But it was so... It was so powerful. Everything in this film feels so real like real people you believe all of these people and that one of the things i really loved was that i could understand the grandmother but i also can understand frank okay the grandmother was called evelyn so i can i can understand evelyn and i can understand frank and they both from their points of view think they're doing the right thing and what i really loved about it is how deep the script delved into what people are thinking because um, Frank doesn't just go no she's supposed to have a normal childhood I don't want to hear anything other than that of course he doubts himself because every time he's like shit am I doing the right thing? what if I keep her from reaching her full potential and 10-20 years from now she's gonna hate me for it So I love that while he has a very strong point of view and he sticks with it But he also of course goes what if I'm wrong? and Interestingly enough Evelyn the grandmother She never has that she is very adamant that she is right and that this girl needs to Needs to be brought up to her full potential needs to be able to You know um, solve this mathematical problem or whatever it is and we are inclined to believe or at least that's how i saw it that um diane probably well i'm going to talk about this in spoilers actually um so i just want to say this this film is beautiful it's beautifully shot the performances are fantastic very engaging and captivating even the little girl absolutely fantastic and even octavia spencer gets her time to shine in this and maybe some of it is a bit cliche but it always delves deeper than that um especially with like some of the revelations that i mentioned previously that i didn't necessarily see coming where you think okay this is what's happened this is where we are and then the script goes by the way you thought you knew what happened but and they're going to tell you something entirely different or or more go a bit more into detail and then all of a sudden everything looks entirely different um so i like that it's clever like that uh the, i i did say the performances were great um but yeah especially chris evans and mckenna grace those two together that's all you need like even if everyone else around them wasn't great those two amazing and and all the like when you find out about Chris Evans' character a bit more and what a what a tragic figure he kind of is. Um just like she is as well. And it's like oh it's great. Um I loved it. I'm tearing up just now, I'm getting all emotional just thinking about it. So go and see that gifted is is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. You need to go and see that, just just out that. I'm, oh God I'm really so emotional I can't even get it. Wow okay. Whew. All good and also if you ever wanted to see a really fucking cool gorgeous one-eyed cat you need to go and see Gifted because Fred awesome and important plot point you introduce the cat in the first act and it's important in the third act just saying and with that I think I'm just gonna go into the spoiler section Okay, so this is your official spoiler warning for Gifted. I don't know why I'm doing that, I I haven't really, like, I need to come up with a spoiler jingle or something. So what I've always been alluding to, like the last 20 minutes or so, um, you think that Diane left Mary with Frank and killed herself and Frank was out and didn't realize his sister needed him or something like that. Really fucking tragic. he tells the story to the teacher Barney. It's like, yeah, I didn't realize that my sister was having having a breakdown or whatever. I went out because I wanted to get laid, and when I came home, my sister had died in my bathtub or something, and I had a baby lying on the couch. Um, we find out later that that's actually not what happened, and I loved that that. Because it's like, why are you feeding us wrong information? Well, it makes perfect sense. You're not going to you're not going to give like your deepest, darkest secrets or or the worst memories of your life to someone you've just fucking met. Right. But because it's been established like that, you go, okay, this is what happened, which is actually stupid. (laughs) So I love this revelation that Diane, Frank's sister, actually solved this fucking math problem. What was it called? Uh, The Navier Stokes problem. So all her life, her mother wanted her to solve one of those fucking price problems, right? Millennium price problems. So we never see or hear it, but it's heavily insinuated that Evelyn pretty much made Diane's life hell. Because she wanted her to be a mathematical genius, like a prodigy. And she thought that she was gonna be the next Einstein or something, right? Um, we find out later on uh, a story where, Eve- uh, where I think Frank talks to Evelyn about is it. like what you did with the boy called whatever he was Paul or whatever her her first love and what Evelyn did to Diane to not make that love happen. So she basically destroyed her own daughter's life because she wanted her to be a mathematical prodigy. And then the real killer that we find out at the end of the film, after Mary has to go into that foster care thing, and then thanks to the cat having been sent to a shelter, because someone having allergies, Frank goes, hang on a minute, allergies? That must be Evelyn, because it's been established early in the film that Evelyn is allergic to cats. So he races over there and he's like, Evelyn, what are you doing here? She's supposed to be raised by foster parents and stuff like that. Um, and and he, he went to like a storage locker and got like a cardboard box. And he tosses the cardboard box to Evelyn. And he was like, here, you should read this. And in the cardboard box are the last things that Diane gave Frank. And amongst them is the solution to the Navier-Stokes problem. So she did that like six, seven years ago. She solved it. And one of the things that she told Frank, before she killed herself, was to not publish this till after her death. And then Evelyn goes, but she died six years ago. And then Frank just says, not her death. And it's heavily insinuated that she wanted her mother to have died knowing that she never managed to solve that problem. She wanted that problem unsolved until her mother died. And then she wanted to publish it. And that just tells you so much like what Diane thought of her mother, how much she must have hated her. That is just so heartbreaking. And after obviously Chris Evans has a scene with her, and like Frank ha- does his thing and basically takes Mary and buggers off. And then Evelyn is by herself with the solution to the Navier Stokes problem, which is what seemed to have been her goal in life all her life. This is what she has been after and she calls MIT and then she has a fucking breakdown. And that's the only time we see Evelyn having a breakdown or or much of an emotional reaction, really. She's quite a cold person. And I love that, that even that character got their, well not necessarily their moment to shine, but Their moment to show their humanity, to show their passion, to show what's important to them. This was so fucking important to her that she destroyed her own daughter's life over it. I mean fucking digest that one. And I love also the the fact that we find out that Diane didn't just walk up at Frank's place, gave him the kid and then killed herself. They apparently had a chat, they clearly talked about what they wanted and she wanted her child to have a normal life because Diane never had that. When she was found to be gifted, her life changed. She was never allowed to have a normal life and she regretted it all the time. And it's not insinuated in the film. Um, It's just an observation I had after seeing it, that she killed herself pretty much as soon as she solved the Navier Stokes problem like that was her entire perceived um, reason for existence because she just had a baby six months ago and that wasn't enough for her to go on living she had just solved this problem that she's been trying to solve all her life because her mother's been kind of drilling this into her this is your thing you're solving this and you're gonna get your picture on that board you're gonna be famous You will forever have been the person who solved the Navy Stokes problem. You're going to be a name. And once she's done that, it was like, this was the reason for my existence. I'm shutting down now. It was really, really weird. And it was so tragic. It really broke me when, when we find out about that, I was like, there was so many, there's so many hits in, in about five to 10 minutes of film that I was I was just like sitting in my chair and like my uh, my my eyes were like I was crying it was just like one cry and snot fest and I was almost like incontrollably sobbing and convulsing and going like oh my god I can't take this anymore this is just so fucking sad and tragic um but it's also really beautiful and I know that sounds really weird but it was it was beautiful I thought it was absolutely beautiful um And that's one of the things that I love about the film, how beautiful it is. Obviously, you have great performances, you have a beautiful film, a beautiful story. And yeah, I I fucking cried. You know, I absolutely loved it. You know, and especially everything you find out about Frank as well as like because you think, okay, he's he's someone who never really um, achieved much. He just repairs boats somewhere at the marina. Later on you find out that he was a philosophy professor at Cambridge or something. Um, And just because his sister gave him the baby and then killed herself, he was like, well, this was my sister's last wish that this baby have a normal life, which means I have to be away from Boston and my mother. Because if my mother finds out this girl's gifted, this girl's life's over, just like Diane's. And so he basically, um, he sacrificed his career and his, his really well-off life, you know, as as a professor. Just to take the child somewhere where his mother wouldn't be able to reach her. It, It was just, it was absolutely beautiful. Like, I loved Frank from the start. But he got elevated so much throughout the film I was like flipping heck I, I didn't really th- I, I didn't really see that that was gonna happen um, and I, I really loved that I mean one of the things that was really weird about the film is like obviously there was a deal made um, during the custody battle so the judge didn't actually rule so I assume it's not law that happened it was just a deal between two parties so maybe it wasn't necessarily by law or legal I have no idea. Um, that Mary was supposed to go to foster parents that lived about 25 minutes away from Frank. And that's where, you know, they go, Oh, the cat has to go because the grandmother is allergic, because the grandmother moved into the guest house and blah, 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 blah. Um, and it was just... He just took Mary and left. And I was like, isn't it... Well, of course, it's not a court order, but wouldn't he get into trouble that he broke the deal? Would they then go back to a custody battle? But maybe Evelyn didn't really care anymore because now she had the solution to this bloody problem and she was like, oh, my daughter, she did it. This is all I need now. Um, I, I think Chris Evans, um, Frank, even says that to her is like people will try to debunk that this is the solution to this problem. They will try to invalidate that. And we need someone to speak for Diane now that she's dead. This is. Totally your job, Evelyn. This is something that you wanted to do all your life, isn't it? And she goes, "This is more important to her than having Mary," which is how he wins sort of custody of Mary again. He sort of breaks a promise to his sister and gives the solution to his mother while his mother's still alive, even though his sister told him not to. Um, but it's in exchange for getting Mary a normal life. And I really, really love that. Um, And just to say, just the the way that you see that later on as well, um, because you see um, Mary in normal school. No, you see Mary in in the gifted school and uh, Frank's picking her up and they're going, I think, to like Girl Scouts or something. So they they managed to give her like gifted education while also allowing her to sort of have a normal childhood which was quite nice to see is like the compromise is possible people Um, as long as you don't go too much into an extreme right it's really weird like this could have probably been done from the get-go of the film but then we wouldn't have had the beautiful journey that we had of watching this film and one of the other things that I really loved about the film um, during the custody battle Her biological dad is brought up and Frank being very frank, you know, true to his name uh, Tells her all about it and and she just loses her shit Because it's like my daddy is here, but he doesn't want to see me. Why is that and she's so She's so distressed. It's one of those. I'm crying again Uh, It's one of those really emotional scenes and it's beautiful. God that girl is fantastic and Frank obviously can't make biological dad show up. So what's he gonna do? And he's like okay. And Octavia Spencer is there as well. And it's like what are we gonna do? She's like really upset. He's like okay, everyone in the car. And everyone gets in the car. And they drive to the hospital. And they're in the hospital. And they're just sitting there. And it's like what are we waiting for? And he's like just wait. And everyone's just sitting there. And, And it looks like it's been hours. What are we waiting for? Just wait. And it's like what are we waiting for? And then it happens and it's such a beautiful reveal and release they're i'm not sure i i thought they were an a and e or something even though no one ever comes in with like a gunshot or, or a knife wound or something but it looks like they were in the maternity ward and we have someone come out um yeah i think it was a father who came out with this like it's a boy and everyone just loses their shit and is happy and congratulates and and <coughs> sorry I'm getting all emotional again um and Frank tells Mary "It's like this this is what we're waiting for and and he and she's like well what's this is like this is what it was like when you were born liar liar I assume liar liar um but it's beautiful oh, oh. I'm getting all emotional just thinking about it it's beautifully shot and He explains it all to her and the gist that I got was that it's a lie but it's one of those what do they call it um one of those white lies you know and she's just like oh my god that's amazing and it's like okay cool and Octavia Spencer is like well done mate um well she doesn't say that but you know she speaks more through her looks and um and Mary then goes like, can we wait for another one? And so they wait for another one and she runs over and just cheers with everyone. Everyone's like, who are you? But doesn't matter, let's just cheer. So Everyone's just cheering and it's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic and beautiful and I'm gonna start crying now. Mm. So that's kind of what the film is like. No matter how how hard it is, how harsh life is, whatever it is, It's very life-affirming and positive and beautiful and full of love. Oh, I'm not going to be able to stop crying now. Okay, I'm not officially crying, but my voice is breaking. So this film is fantastic. I absolutely loved it. And it's, it's really emotional, but like, in a, in a good way. You know, sometimes you watch something and you cry your eyes out and you walk out and go like, oh my God, I'm exhausted. That was that was like, oh God, I need to pick me up. And you watch this one, you watch Gifted. And while it is emotional and um, while you will cry a lot, if you don't cry, there's something seriously wrong with you. Um, but it's more of a, like a positive thing. It's very uplifting. It's very, yeah, very positive, very beautiful. I absolutely loved it. When I walked out of the cinema, I, I had a smile on my face. It's that kind of film. Absolutely loved it. Um, yeah, I think I think that's pretty much it. It's absolutely beautiful, and you need to go and see it. Like if you want, um, you know, something with a. A bit of intrigue and suspense and a bit of layers and stuff go and watch my cousin Rachel but if you want just a really beautiful film that anyone can go and see you don't need to be in the right mindset to see it it's just it's just gorgeous and captivating and you feel for the characters and and you you feel with the characters whereas with other films sometimes you feel a bit like an outsider here I was like oh my god I was like so in it I absolutely loved it Um, I think this is gonna go on my top 10 list Um, it's not a very long list at the moment Um, but I really thought it was fantastic and I think everyone should go and see it I mean everyone should go and see my cousin Rachel but very very different film this one gifted beautiful absolutely beautiful It's, it's about love and friendship and sacrifice and and all of that jazz, it is fucking fantastic. I absolutely loved it. That little girl is astounding. It is just, it's just fantastic. Yeah, I know I'm, I'm saying this a lot, but everyone's great. Um, but definitely Chris Evans and McKenna Grace, who plays Mary, those two together. I think I said it earlier, they're pure gold. Every single scene they're in. The the tragic ones, the dramatic ones, the emotional ones, the happy ones, the, the funny ones. Uh, don't forget the cat, one-eyed cat Fred. This film has everything. It's like the perfect mixture. It, it's sweet and sour. It's, it's just... Yeah, you just gotta go and see it. Just trust me, go and see that. <laughs> Alright, and now on to the last one. Which is Baby Driver and I know that uh, I'm gonna be very uh, alone here in my review because everyone and their dog and one-eyed cats uh, loves this film. Oh this is the best thing since sliced bread! Rawr, rawr, rawr. I watched it throughout the film I was a bit like yeah there were things about the film that I really love like the action sequences are fantastic I know I use this word a lot but they are fantastic trust me the action sequences they're like better than the fast and furious action sequences because they're a bit more realistic but still really extreme and crazy and awesome and fast and the music is top-notch like the the soundtrack of the film i need to go get it i actually i haven't checked spotify yet but i do hope it's on there because it's awesome i mean if, if you don't know what what baby driver is about you basically have um, Thingy, what's his name? Uh, <laughs> thingy, what's his name? Uh, Ansel Elgord, he plays um, Baby. And there was a little uh, car accident when he was younger. And so he has Constantinitis, which is like that weird, like high pitched noise in your ear that you can't turn off because it's in your ear. Right. so he always walks around with like uh, music plugged into his ears like he always has his headset his, his headphones in um, which probably also explains why he's really into music and all of that stuff so he always listens to music and you as the viewer always hear what music he is listening to which is really cool because most of the stuff he listens to is really fucking awesome um, I really loved the visuals of the film, I love the action sequences and I love the the soundtrack. Those are my absolute highlights. Now the main problem I had with the film is that it didn't even take me five minutes to dislike the protagonist. And I know that sounds really weird. Um, I've seen Ansel Elgort in a few different films and so far I've always liked him. But here, I just literally, I timed it less than five minutes of film and I thought he was an overly cocky, self-assured, arrogant prick. I couldn't stand him. And the film basically starts with him being in the car uh, and uh, three other people get out of the car to rob a bank. And the camera stays with him. He has his music in his ears. And he sings his music and he claps the outside of the car and, and the steering wheel. You know, you probably hear what I'm doing right now. You know, that's what he does. And, in, and he wears his sunglasses and just the way that he does that. I, I, I don't really know how to put that into words. He does that in such a self-assured, cocky, arrogant way. That I immediately thought, I want to see you fail. Mr. Perfect. And then so I was like, oh my god, what you're you're just awesome. You're just so fucking cool because you're waiting on three fucking criminals who are robbing a bank and you see in the background what they do, they're not really being nice about it, so they're quite violent. Um I don't think they killed anyone, but still they're quite violent. And um he's just there like singing his song and clapping at his car and blah 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 and going like this is the time of my life, alright, yeah. And and I was like, who the fuck are you? Like, he looks like he's about 12, right? He, he is like Ansel Elgort has a bit of a baby face. So he looks like he's about 12 and he's just like, look at me, like hanging out with all these like older people, robbing a bank because I'm fucking awesome. Oh yeah, right. By then you don't really know who the character is. Like he could be like a mega awesome criminal who's like killed 50 people because he drove over them in his escape car, whatever. You don't know anything about it. All you know is how he deals with the music there. And I was like, I don't know, everyone around me loved it. And I was like, he rubs me as a really arrogant asshole. If I saw him on the street, I think you're a fucking arrogant prick. And that was my first impression of our protagonist. And if you think the protagonist is an arrogant prick, I don't think that bodes well for the film and yeah it doesn't because I didn't really like it. I mean, I'm gonna say right from the get-go, I think the film's alright. Um, It's enjoyable to an extent. Um, it, It looks amazing. It sounds amazing. It's really flashy and beautiful and gorgeous and technically brilliant. But for me it was lacking heart, especially at the start. Um, there is, you know, Heart comes in a bit later, but it almost feels like they just force fed it to someone. It didn't feel... To me, it didn't feel earned. Everything felt artificial when it comes to the um, emotional integrity of any of the characters, especially the protagonist. I really had a hard time with it. So you have Ansel Elgord who stars as Baby. And he is... We're never actually told how old he is, but for whatever reason, he is like one of the best drivers on the face of the earth. Like, you know, Dominic Toretto would try and find him just so he could be part of his gang. That's kind of how awesome he is. Like he's a really fucking cool driver. It's ridiculous the stunts he pulls. He's so young. And one of the things that irked me in the film is we never find out why he is such a good driver he's not just a good driver he is excellent like the shit that he pulls off is i was just staring at the screen was like i wonder how often they had to shoot that to make that work without crashing the car it's it's amazing it looks amazing the action sequences are fucking brilliant absolutely i was just staring i was like oh my god this is insane But some of the choices that the character makes, to me, it just made no fucking sense. So what actually happens is that he is a driver or driving expert who works for some criminal overlord called Doc, who is played by Kevin Spacey, with uh, Kevin Spacey's usual house of cards stone face. I do not move a muscle other than my mouth because I have to say some dialogue and shit. Um and there's some weird random people that he robs banks with or does whatever jobs with um, and he always um drives the getaway car while he's listening while he's listening to music because that's what he does right and like i said the music's really cool the action sequences are really cool awesome so they rob the bank and then he drives away from from the cops in a really awesome sequence it looks fucking fantastic Absolutely brilliant. I was like, okay, other than him maybe having a bit of an iffy start, maybe I'll warm up to him, whatever. And then they, they go somewhere, um, they go into a parking lot, whatever it is, into a garage and then Doc's there and he's distributing the money and all of that stuff and everyone's getting their share. And while they're sorting all of that out, they go, Baby, you go and get the coffee. And then Baby goes and get the coffee, but he doesn't go and get the coffee like a normal person, not attracting any kind of attention to himself. No, he's seen La La Land about a hundred times. So he goes like, Oh, I'm going to fret a stair this shit to the coffee place. Yeah. So he starts like dancing and shit through the streets all the while having his headphones in, so not really being able to hear much. So he almost gets run over by a fucking car or two, runs into pedestrians, smashes into other people and literally goes, Oh, I'm sorry about this. I'm sorry about that. Fred is staring around the lamppost and just basically, I don't know. Maybe you need to be a 15 year old boy to appreciate this. This this cockiness of going like, I just fucking robbed a bank and I'm fucking awesome. I just escaped the police and I didn't even dent the car. I didn't even clip the curb. That's how fucking awesome I am. And now I'm dancing my way to this fucking coffee shop and I'm spelling the word B-A-B-Y because people go, why are you called Baby? It was just so artificial and over the top and it made no sense. Why is he dancing to the fucking coffee shop? Also, we never see him dancing to anywhere ever again in the film. So this was just like a one off. It's like what he just felt like it. I mean, fair enough, this shit happens. But it's like, it made no sense. Why is he doing that? It's like, because that's how awesome I am. That that was the proper continuation of his annoyed ass, annoying ass self sitting in the car going like, Oh, my music's awesome. We're robbing a bank and I'm going to get to drive away from the cops. Alright, alright, alright." That's kind of what it was like. It was fucking annoying. It was forced and it didn't feel like they, they, they just wanted to do some stylized, good looking shit that doesn't necessarily have to make sense for the film. Like, it really alienated me. I was like, I mean, fair enough. I'm also not really a fan of La La Land. I was like, what the fuck? You know, if you want to show me Fred Astaire, then show me a fucking Fred Astaire film. That kind of thing. It's like, why is this dude dancing? You know, fair enough. If he does this, if this is his ritual after every time they rob some bank. Fair enough. First of all, how is this guy still alive? Because constantly cars are driving into him because he doesn't check left or right. And he just dances across the street and then people have to break for him because he obviously doesn't listen because he's listening to music. And I don't know. Yeah, it's like, seriously, you've just robbed a bank. You don't want to draw any attention to you, right? But you're dancing in the street. You're the only person dancing in the street, by the way. You're smashing into cars and people drawing attention to yourself. It's, it's like this makes no sense. This is like counterproductive. This is really fucking stupid. It made no cocking sense to me. It really annoys me when shit like that happens. So they do that. He comes back with, uh, with his four cups of coffee. Everyone drinks coffee but him, apparently. Um, then they divide up the, the the stash and we find out that Doc takes pretty much baby stash minus one... What, what do you call it? Like one one thing of money. Like one... How do you call it? Like one bag of... No, it's not a bag. One... Not a slip. What, one pile of money, you know, that has the thingy around it. Whatever that's called. So he gets that. Everything else goes with Doc and Doc goes like, well, we're almost even. Turns out when Baby was younger, he stole a car because apparently he's into cars. Yeah, we didn't know that. He stole a car um, and Doc had some really high priced merchandise in the back. Baby didn't know that. And I think the car got smashed or whatever. The merchandise was gone. So now he owes Doc. I don't know. They never say how much he owes him. But it turns out, as do you do with these films, um, just one more and we're gonna be even. You know, it's one of those scenarios. Um, and obviously Baby doesn't want to do the stuff that he has to do for Doc, uh, even though they seem to be quite on good terms. So he goes home to his foster parent, his foster father, who is a uh, older black man in a wheelchair who seems to be deaf. So Baby also uh, knows how to do sign language because yeah, that's what people do, right? Um, he stashes the money in, in In the floorboards and his dad is like, I don't like you keeping that money I don't like you working for this guy. So his dad clearly knows what's going on and um, and then his dad goes like, oh, I want a I want a sandwich. And then baby makes a sandwich. And he doesn't just make a sandwich like a normal person. He has to make like a big thing out of it. He's like, damn, you bread. There's the bread and there is the peanut butter. And there is this and singing and dancing and pointing a pound and pound. Apparently, this is how you make a peanut butter. Well, yeah, peanut butter sandwich. I want to say PBJ, but that's not right. So he just seems to make a big thing out of every tiny fucking shit detail in his life like making a peanut butter sandwich and it was just like come on mate just get over yourself can you do anything like a normal person and one of the things that really irked me is you never find out why he is so good at driving cars like who taught him where did he where, wh- who, who taught him where did he learn this shit you don't just pick that up because you just steal cars and start driving it what it's ridiculous it's they're trying to insin- and, and also he's apparently a really good dancer and later on in the film he turns into a parkour runner that will just make your head spin so it's like apparently if you just if you if your family dies like if your mom and dad die in a car crash while you're in the car and you get tinnitus from it and you constantly listen to music you will get the superpower of being an amazing driver precision driver and an an even more amazing parkour runner. And apparently a really good peanut butter sandwich maker. So I was like, what the fuck is going on? It, it was just, it was reaching. You know, it, it was like a superhero film without an origin story. The origin story was, I saw my parents die in a car crash. I got tinnitus because of that. And ever since then I've been obsessed with cars and I needed to learn how to control them. into into the tiniest detail, like millimeter work. That's how good I'm at driving. Every single car you can throw at me. And I'm also really good at running, like parkour. Like I can jump over really high shit and I can run really, really fast. No one stops me. I'm perfect. This is my origin story. I'm baby. Driver. But you can call me baby. I was like, come on, man. At least Spider-Man got bitten by a fucking radioactive spider, right? So this one, I was like, it made no sense to me. Because this wasn't a superpower driving a shit that people do, right? And of course, there are stunt drivers and all of that stuff. And they learn this shit for years and years and decades and whatever. So there's a reason why. This guy looks like, I said, he's about 12. He's probably 20. Where did he learn that shit? You don't just make this shit up. You don't just teach it to yourself. Someone needs to teach this shit to you. It would have been interesting to see. Maybe then I wouldn't have had such a big problem with it. If, if it's like, oh, he had his own Mr. Miyagi or something like that, would have been fine. But I was like, I just don't buy it. And then considering that he drives a lot, I mean, I know that race car drivers are, are usually in, in really prime physical condition. But when he did this like parkour running near the end, I was just like, oh, you gotta be fucking kidding me. Now he's good at that shit too, little Mr. Fucking Perfect. He really graded on me. Really really fucking annoying and then one of the things that really irked me was the inconsistency with his tinnitus the the entire um, The entire premise of the film is that he needs to have his headphones in all the time because his tinnitus is so bad I assume it would drive him bonkers and yet he can easily be without it for a few hours while he's trying to have a really nice meal with his new girlfriend in a restaurant no headphones or when he goes into a bank because he has to scope it out for the um, for the bank robbery later on he is also not wearing headphones because doc tells him not to so he's in there for like i don't know 10 10 minutes maybe 20 i have no idea and he doesn't need them either so why does he need them in a normal life that's ridiculous if it's that bad that he has to wear them at all times Clearly he has to wear them at all times. What's he do when he sleeps? Does he sleep with music on? Probably. Fair enough. Okay. But seriously, like you could easily kill this guy just by setting a fire in his place, because once he's asleep, he won't hear a fire alarm because he's listening to fucking music. Like, what the fuck? It's, it's ridiculous. Um, one of the things I really liked in the film, other than the visuals and the car chases and the music, was. There was a little role there. There was, um, I can't remember his name, but he played as a little kid, a little boy. He played the nephew of Kevin Spacey's character, Doc. And he goes with Baby into the bank to chase it, to chase it, to case it. And Doc tells Baby what to look for and stuff like that. And he's having a really hard time. Like, "Uh, how many cameras were there? How many guards? How many employees? How many registers? How many? uh?" And the boy goes in and goes like, this is what it is. There are six cameras here. There are four employees there. There were eleven uh, customers here, and there was this and this and this. Really easy to pick. And he was just such a such a cute little, cute little boy. He he was one of the highlights for me. He was like, um, I mean, I'd seen gifted just a few hours earlier, and he reminded me of, of uh, Mary, the the little gifted kid. And he was, like, he was just so aware and so switched on and just paying attention to everything and the little boy did it with such a great performance he was just so charismatic and cute about it and when one of the cashiers um, offers him a mint it's like oh i've got a mint here with your name on it and he's like it's got my name on it <laughs> and it's just uh, it's, it's just great seriously if you watch the film and I mean, you could totally do it after you've seen *Gifted* and, and my cousin Rachel go and see *Baby Driver*. Um, but that scene, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. That little kid is amazing, and then they get back into the car with Kevin Spacey, and *Baby Driver's is trying, baby is trying to give him like all this uh, information, and then the little kid says something, and Kevin Spacey is like, "Oh man, you're more like your uncle than I thought, eh? Oh, family, it's really, really." cute. It it was it was definitely sorry, it was definitely one of the highlights for me. I really like this little kid. I don't even remember his name. Um and then uh as you do with these films like this whole like uh crime buster thingamajig. of course he's gonna fall in love with someone and his new girlfriend is a waitress at a diner and then she gets like caught up in all of that shit as well because the the next job Excuse me, the next job that baby has to do um, goes a tiny bit not his way. I thought that was quite interesting, actually. Uh, I'm not sure if he was just too sure of himself or something, but he doesn't drive as well as he used to. And a lot like he dents the car and a lot of other shit happens as well. And there's a shootout and all of that stuff. And basically people people get um, get hurt. And the entire time I'm like, okay, so you have this protagonist who's doing this job and and he's not the violent person but he is enabling violent people to get away with their crime and it gets more and more violent throughout the entire film Uh, which of course is when he then goes okay i have to put a stop to this because uh, as as per usual even though doc goes you no longer owe me but you're still my fucking driver so you're gonna show up on the next job as well and he's like oh i need to get out of this life of crime and and stuff like that um, as is oh, like literally it follows this archetypical stereotype of a movie scenario trust me it's exactly that and then of course um, the usual suspects come back so you have Jamie Fox and John Hamm show up um, as uh, two of the bank robbers basically and they're very very different people and they end up in the diner with the girlfriend and then all of that goes sideways and you know all kinds of shit is is hitting the fan near the end and it's just so um, it's so stereotypical and stupid the stuff that happens there. First of all it's really predictable second of all I was like I, I can't really feel for Baby because I don't know it was, it, was, it was... he's enabling these people to do all these violent crimes it's not like they're just robbing a bank no one ever gets hurt which is why he feels like yeah I can do this it's all fine these things are really violent and later on they get even more violent and later on there's like a mega shootout and all of that stuff and and Baby is is also responsible for people getting hurt and I think even people getting killed if I'm not mistaken and you know all kinds of shit happens of course everything goes to the extreme and and there's a showdown there that is full of action and looks great but overall, it's just so predictable and a bit like, Oh, really? Did you have to go there? Didn't you? Like you're trying to do something innovative. Uh, why are you not trying to do something innovative with the story or the characters or what they want or what, you know, what they're after, where they're going and all of that stuff. And none of that happens. And I'm going to talk about that more in spoilers, but overall, I just couldn't feel for any of the characters. I felt more for John Hamm's character. There is something that happens later on in the film that deeply affects his character, and I'm like, I can totally get you. I don't necessarily get Baby at all, and and that's one of the one of the weird things is like if you relate more to, well, not necessarily one of the villains, but but one of the side characters, and then something else happens to. Um, with Kevin Spacey's character. So yeah, we definitely have to go into the spoiler section. But um, I just want to say that (coughs) everyone is saying that Baby Driver is fantastic. And this is amazing, like homages to like those those crimebusters from the 70s and 80s. Maybe it is. I mean, I've not really been a fan of those kinds of films, maybe for a reason. I just don't think a film like this works in the here and now because it's just so archaic. I mean, it looks fantastic. Like I said, the action sequences are absolutely brilliant. They're so detailed and fun and a joy to watch. And also in conjunction with the amazing soundtrack that they put together for the film. Like, even if you don't check out the film, and probably you, you will be, because everyone's talking about Baby Driver. But just check out the fucking soundtrack. That by itself is already worth it like i wouldn't say that baby driver is is a waste of time or money like i know that i probably sounded really negative but i i was trying to just bring my my points across and obviously my points were a bit of of gripey points because everyone else seems to be raving about this film and i really wanted to like it just as per usual i'm like okay i want to go in there and i want to have a good time but for whatever reason i didn't really enjoy it it was beautifully shot and the performances are great but the performances, like I remember Jamie Fox and John Hamm more than I remember Baby or Kevin Spacey or the girlfriend Deborah or whatever her name was. Um, it, I don't know, it was. <sighs> Seriously, it is like a superhero film. He even has the uncle or the aunt. It's like Aunt May is now uncle, foster father, can't remember his name in the wheelchair. Um, it's all of that but he's not officially a superhero so it's just uh, it didn't it didn't gel well for me it just didn't work for me unfortunately because it was just too over the top um with his driving skills and then like i said later on the parkour running and stuff he was just too perfect as a character even though of course there there are certain downfalls but but he falls for a girl and of course the girl totally falls for him as well there's there's no like immediately there's no he has to work for it or something like that it just works you know the script says so we have chemistry i like you you like me bam we're a couple it just nothing felt earned in this film it just felt like this is what's gonna happen because the script says this is what's gonna happen and that just yeah it didn't work for me at all if it's not earned it just doesn't work and i like stupid films like i I mean seriously i like triple x and Fast and the Furious and all of these films are really stupid but the characters in these films always have I don't even really want to say realism but they're somehow grounded in reality and I can understand their points of view and what drives them and all of that stuff whereas here with Baby I didn't really get it. All the shit that he does in the film everything that he's a part of nothing wakes him up other than when he then finally has that girlfriend and he's like, okay, now I need to change my life. And I'm like, that's just such a weird thing to do. I don't know. It was, it was really bizarre. But anyway, um, I am going into the spoilers now. So this is your official spoiler warning for Baby Driver. And I'm trying to write something down while I'm talking. And my pen is just not cooperating. Pro- because it's a bitch. So... One of the things that was really bizarre to me, you know, the character of Doc, played by Kevin Spacey, who's like this this crime person, crime mogul, monster, whatever, crime boss that Baby works for, is basically the reason why Baby is involved in the shit in the first place, right? Because if Baby had stolen a car with all, like, whatever value shit was in there, he wouldn't owe however much money it was that he owed Doc. And so he wouldn't do all these, like, getaway driving things. So Doc is basically to blame for that, causality wise, up to debate, but you know what I mean. And um, later on in the film, after they've done that heist with Jamie Foxx and John Hamm, and it didn't really go very well. They, there's this whole alienation happening between Jamie Foxx and Baby, they basically kind of want to kill each other and there's like shootout and, and all of that stuff. and. I don't want to spoil too much, but what uh, what basically happens is that Doc, aka Kevin Spacey, stands up for Baby. He he hands him like an entire bag of cash and goes like, yeah, go for it, you know, just go, just run. Don't worry. I'll take care of people. And then obviously, you know, Kevin Spacey gets run over by Jamie Foxx because if you can't shoot him, just run him over with the fucking car. Um, I didn't see that happening. Why, why would he do that? I mean, fair enough, you know, may, maybe a bit of like a, a father-son relationship and obviously Doc really likes Baby, but understandably, because Baby is the best driver that Doc could find, which is why Baby is always driving for him. Because it ensures that the bank robbers get away and Doc gets his share of the cash. But this emotional attachment that's there all of a sudden? I just didn't see that happening. There was no base for it whatsoever. Like, if, if this comes up later in the film, th- you must lay a foundation to make this realistic. It came out of nowhere. Like, all of a sudden Kevin Spacey is like, yeah, I've got the shotgun. Don't worry. I've got you covered. I'm like, wait, wait, what? I was as flabbergasted as Baby was. It's like, why, why would you do that? Basically, Doc died for Baby. Why would he do that? It makes no sense. So some background on that was much needed and would have been great. Like you could have added something in there. Like, I don't know how they might have been connected. Maybe Doc was responsible for the car crash that killed baby's parents or something like that. You know, Um, which is why he was a bit lenient with baby stealing the car and allowed him to like work it off instead of just killing the fucker, which is probably what most people would have done. Um, even though economically wise it makes more sense to make him work for it but I didn't see this happening at all and when it happened in the film I was like you gotta be fucking kidding me that was such a stretch that made that made absolutely zero sense it was so fucking stupid and there were a few things like that um, that happened throughout the film and uh, I don't know It, it was just Later on, you know, when um, obviously Jamie Fox is is trying to kill people and and he dies, and then John Ham um, John Ham's wife gets killed in the film. And that's one of the things I was talking about earlier. I was like, I understand his reasoning about losing his shit because his wife just got fucking shot in front of him because of something that baby did. So of course he's holding him responsible for that. Which is why he's after baby and he wants to kill him. And then the girlfriend comes in, in into play, and, and everything gets a bit, gets a bit um, problematic. But what he does at the end, and I mean, there's a really great action sequence um, between those guys. But it's also so over the fucking top, and it's just, it's so predictable, and it's the predictability that makes it really annoying, because it's not entertaining enough to make up for predictability. Um so what happens is they have to show down in some kind of like several story garage uh building and par- like a parking lot building. And um John Hamm has the upper hand against Baby and you know how Baby has this tinnitus all the time, and yet John Hamm for whatever reason decides he's he's not gonna shoot him. He's gonna shoot right next to his left ear and right next to his right ear. So he can't hear anything like seriously, not just the tinnitus, but you, he can't hear shit. And then his next line is, Oh, it's such a shame that you can't hear her scream. Now referring to the girlfriend in the car, obviously he wanted to, either torture her or kill her in front of him in front of baby so that baby has to go through the same thing that John Hamm's character just had to go through watching his wife die so it makes perfect sense right but why shoot the fucker sorry not shoot him but but why shoot a gun next to his ears both of them so that he seriously is deaf for well I mean some people say that you could be deaf uh, permanently you could be deaf for a few hours weeks whatever um, in this instance, apparently Baby is deaf for uh, the indefinite future by the looks of it But then the character the villain says oh, it's a shame you can't hear a scream now. Why shoot the fucking gun next to his ears? You could have just fucking done what you wanted without shooting his like it, shooting the gun next to his ears made zero sense I mean maybe the the villain is stupid. So far, he hasn't made the impression of being stupid until he did this and I was like Why would you do that, you stupid motherfucker? It makes no sense. Absolutely no sense. And then, of course, um, you know, that's not really gonna happen, right? Uh, I think it's the girl who then smashes him and he falls over and whatever, you know, they get rid of the villain. And then they, they drive away and of course the cops are gonna find them and baby goes, don't worry, you're not coming with me. And he's like putting his hands up, you know, and, and that's another thing that I thought was really funny. It's like They're on a bridge and there are cops blocking the one side of the bridge and then cops behind them are blocking off the other side of the bridge. So they're on the bridge and they're basically um, cut off from everything, right? And then baby, just gets out of the car and he takes the keys so that his girlfriend doesn't try anything stupid and throws him in the river and he has his hands up and he walks towards the cops like cleanly making it clear it's like I'm not armed I'm giving up and I mean maybe this worked like in the 70s and 80s but this is 2017 when he when he gives up to the cops the way that he does it is like you 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 have the hands up right and usually they say something along the lines put the hands on your on the back of your head put your leave your hands where, where we can see them and stuff like that. you don't hear any of that because it's silent but he has his hands up and then all of a sudden he turns around shows their shows his back to them and he moves both of his hands to the to his lower back and I'm like mate any officer in the United States of America, would have fucking clipped you for this because you could potentially have a gun somewhere and you're moving your both your hands to your body again to your hip that's that's something you don't do when cops approach you to take you into custody maybe nothing happened because he was white if he was black he would have been fucking shot and I, th- I thought it would have been nice to just, like, see that. I, I, not that I wanted him to get shot, but um, I just thought that entire movement, obviously it was, I assume it was choreographed, unless Ansel got just made it up on the spot. But it sounded so weird, and like, it looked so weird to me. That movement, with, like, both hands to the lower back, I mean, that's where they usually handcuff you. But as far as I know, I've never seen this happen, that a U.S. cop Let's you move your hands to the lower back. No, your hands are on the back of your head and they move them down there and then put the fucking handcuffs on you. So I thought that was so unrealistic, especially in the current climate. Really fucking irked me. Um, that was really stupid. And then of course we see him um, in prison. Um, apparently he got 25 years with parole. Uh, there's a parole, um, sorry, 25 years and then there's a parole hearing after five years. Um, and when he's in prison, apparently he's, he's deaf, like his um, foster father. Uh, oh, one, one really cute scene was while he was trying to run away from everyone. It's like he saved his foster father and put him in a home with all the money he stashed under the floorboards. That was kind of cute. That was really, really sweet of him. Um, that was a really good scene as well. But when he's in prison, so he's basically like his, his, um, foster father. Uh, thank God he knows sign language because his foster father was deaf as well. So he seems to not being able to hear. Um, and we're not told whether his parole hearing after five years went really well, but he's released from prison looking exactly the same way he did when he went in. So I assume his parole hearing went really well, or because he's white, he didn't even have to wait five years. They just released him because he was such a goody-goody two-shoes, even though he's responsible for several people's deaths. So he's released and the girlfriend's there waiting for him and everything is a happy ending. Yay! Yay! And isn't it just a great message for a film like this? It's like, it doesn't matter how many banks you rob or what big of a, how big of a criminal you are or how many people you have killed directly or indirectly. You were a polite, nice person. And we let you out after just five years and you get the happy end with the girlfriend. Yay! Yay. What a shit ass message that is. I mean, seriously, if young men watch this film, are they not just going to go like, wow, a life of crime is going to be awesome. All you get, like, you have to go to prison just like a short while. Nothing's going to happen to you, especially as long as you're white. And then there's the girlfriend just waiting for you. You still look the same the way that you went into prison. So no biggie. So just do whatever it is you want to do. Just race your fucking car, cause mayhem and death and destruction. It's perfectly fine. Whoop, whoop, whoop. That's just not going to fly. Seriously, what kind of a shit ass message is this? I don't understand this at all. And then like, I I really, I really didn't like it. Well, I'm saying that it's it's not like I really didn't like it. I I enjoyed it to to an extent, but I enjoyed John Hamm and Jamie Foxx the most out of the entire film. And they were both villains, you know, and to be fair, no one really was a hero in this. maybe the girlfriend Deborah and that that was pretty much it. but I don't know it was uh, what's what's his name Jeffrey Wright? I think he did um, he was the director of of the film and um sorry Edgar Wright sorry Jeffrey Wright someone else. So Edgar Wright. so I looked up what he's done. And I mean, he's he's done some alright films, but when I saw that he's the dude who did Scott Pilgrim I was like, okay, this is what it is. This is the Scott, the Scott Pilgrim version of like a race caper. That's what it is. And I'm not a fan of Scott Pilgrim. I thought that film was shit. I really didn't like it. And that might be why I didn't like Baby Driver. I thought Scott Pilgrim was rubbish. I also didn't like the protagonist. Baby Driver is alright, but I also don't like the protagonist. The action sequences are fucking ace. The soundtrack's even more ace. And it looks good. That's all you've got. It looks fantastic. It sounds fantastic. Technically, it's so well done. It's a joy to watch. The problem is that none of the characters are really interesting, engaging, or captivating. Some of them are annoying, including the protagonist, which doesn't fucking fly, man. But I mean, there's lots of people that love the that love the film. Um, but every time I talk to someone about why they love the film, they go like, "Well, the action sequences are great, and have you heard the music?" It's like, "Well, yeah, the the technical aspects of the film are great, but..." what about the story? Bullshit. The story is utter bullshit. And so predictable. It's, it's just a typical archetypical narrative that you have for these kinds of films. It doesn't really reinvent the wheel, considering how innovative it's supposed to be. It's, a, it's really disappointing in that regard. Especially because everyone's like, oh my god, this is one of the most fantastic films I've ever seen. Wow, wow, wow. Visually, yes. Audio? Yes, stunning. The performances are good, but the characters are just so fucking flat. And flat characters just don't fucking fly with me. It does not work. I don't like it. Now, it's not a waste of time. It's still like popcorn flick. I was shaking my head several times. I was face palming myself several times throughout the film. But other than that, You know, half of the film is really, really good and the other half is just really, really bad. So together you get a mediocre mix of awesome bullshit. So... If you want to go and see that, do that. But if you trust me, then go and see Gifted instead. I mean, if you want to see some stupid action... Actually, no, if you want to see action, go and see fucking Wonder Woman, because that's a great action film. Or go see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Oh, I just wanted to say hell even go and see The Mummy. I'm taking that back. Which is why I didn't want to say it in the first place. Um, Baby Driver is kind of on par with The Mummy or Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, It looks good. It sounds good. Great CGI, great action sequences, all of that stuff. It's stylish, but it has no substance. That's what Baby Driver is. That's what The Mummy is. That's what Pirates of the Caribbean is unfortunately doesn't work for me so overall you can go and see it I don't think it's gonna be a waste of time or money but I think you could do so much better especially considering what's in cinemas at the moment I would not choose Baby Driver when I go to the cinema if I hadn't seen much that's out at the moment so trust me on that just go and see go and see Gifted Go and see my cousin Rachel. Now, obviously none of these are action films, but if you want to see an action film, go see Wonder Woman um, or go see Guardians of the Galaxy. Seriously. Um, I think that's probably going to be it. I mean, this is a fucking long podcast. I do apologize. Over two hours. I did have to rant a bit. Plus, I had to make up for last week, so I'm sorry about that. Um, Next week, I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to be watching. Uh, Churchill is out. I have to go and see that. And then there's um, The Book of Henry or The Book on Henry and there's something else, I can't remember what it was. Oh, Hempstead, that uh, dying Keaton film, which is apparently not that great, but I, I gotta try and, and, and maybe see that if I can. Churchill looks like it it is something I need to watch. But overall, none of these films are really like, oh, you have to go and see that. Um, I haven't seen Wonder Woman in about two weeks, so I feel like I need to go and see that again. I've only seen it three times. There are people out there that I've seen it like eight times or ten times. So, not that I'm trying to do that. By the way, if anyone knows where to get a really nice steelbook edition of Wonder Woman. So either here in the UK or in Germany, because I don't mind if it's in German. Um, well, not the film, just like the menu. Those are the only two languages I, I read or speak um if anyone knows of a nice steelbook edition let me know um because at the moment i only know hmb's got one well they're gonna get one but we don't really know what it's gonna look like so i'm not sure if i want to buy that but anyway that's it for me for this week thank you very much for listening i know it's been going on for a while um yeah my cousin rachel really good i mean rachel weiss come on rachel Wise, sam Claflin, just for the performances you need to go and see it gifted that is, I think that's the highlight of the week for me. Gifted, yeah. That really stuck with me. I mean, you, you heard me getting all emotional just talking about it. Um, fantastic film. Brilliant. Uh, I'm going to have to put this on my top 10 list now. And uh, yeah, Baby Driver. I mean, if, if you like fast cars and, and car chases, you can go and see it. But there are not enough car chases in there to actually make it a great film, unfortunately. But that's just me. Most people seem to like it. So there you go. I'm always swimming against the grain. Call me salmon. Anyway, um, I hope you guys have a really lovely weekend. I hope you get to see anything at the cinema. If you haven't seen Wonder Woman yet, go and check it out. Seriously. Of all the films ever, like the last few months, you need to go and see fucking Wonder Woman. If you haven't done it yet, go go and do it now. Well, I'll be back next Friday. And hopefully this will have recorded this time, otherwise I'm going to cry. Um, so have a lovely weekend and i see you next week. Bye!